Hey, welcome to Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us here again today. And also welcome to the summer and the new summer series called The Real You. Now, now before I get going, let me give you some needed background of how we got here and why this series and why this could matter so much to you personally and actually to our whole church. I've mentioned this before. Let me do it again. Uh, every year, I take a moment in our planning cycle to go away with the Lord and ask Him what He wants to say to our church in the coming ministry year. It's what we say all the time, prompting to planning. And so when I sat with God about this ministry year, 2019-2020, as I sat with Him, clear as day, very quickly, the Lord spoke and said, John, the word or the theme, the underarching idea for the whole year in the church is the word foundation. And right when I heard foundation, then all these series were given to me, one after the next after the next. First thing he said is preach the book of Galatians. The church needs to know what the real gospel is, the foundation. Then he said, preach on Jonah. The church needs to know my heart for all ethnic groups and forgiveness and my heart for the world and even the call to love enemies. Foundation. Then he said, you need to also preach on eternity. Talk about heaven. Talk about hell. Tell the church that this is real. This is coming. This is foundation. Then he said, talk about marriage. Strengthen marriages. And so we did that series and we launched the marriage course. And then hundreds of us have taken, of course, that course called the marriage course. And then again, spiritual disciplines. The invitation back into an older conversation to be brought back in a fresh way. And of course, we had no clue what was coming. And wow, what an amazing sovereign moment where he had prepared myself and our whole staff to have this conversation so we could redeem this moment. But the last thing he said was this. He said, you must also speak to the church about how I see them. Because how I see them is actually their true identity, found in my son, Jesus. And so that is why we're ending this ministry year with this conversation. This is sort of the last pillar in the foundation of the house that we've been building all year. Neil Anderson years ago said this, the most important belief we possess is a true knowledge of who God is. The second most important belief is who we are as children of God because we cannot consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how we perceive ourselves. In other words, how you act really reflects about what you think, about what God thinks about you, and about what you think about you. So let me ask this question. What is the most important aspect of your life? What is the most significant, the most overarching theme, the most influential factor? Well, if you are a Christian, and I know some of you are not, but for we who are, it is this. You are a child of God. Oh, how do you become a child of God? Through Jesus alone. Oh, yes, every human being is made by God in the truest sense. All of us made in the image of God. But, but the scriptures are absolutely clear. Not all human beings are children of God. You only become his child. You only get relationship with him when Jesus is accepted because he deals with our sin. He makes us clean. He gives us the way back home. He allows us to call God Father again. He's involved in the process of adopting us back. This all happens when you become 
a Christian. Now, the title Christian is used and abused and misused all over the place, but let's start, its, let's start at its beginning. Do you know when the title Christian was used first? We read about it in Acts 11.26. The disciples, the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, most believe this was an insult originally. It meant little Jesus or little Christ. So people would mock you, little Jesus, little Jesus. But the name stuck. And it moved much deeper than insult or some on-the-surface description. It became our core identity as followers of Jesus. Christian came to be synonymous with relationship with Jesus and child of God. Within years, that name that was insult actually became our chosen identity and our chosen marking. Peter himself, near the end of his life, read, writing 1 Peter, writes this in 1 Peter 4.16, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So he redeems the insult to make it identity. Christian. I am a Christian. If you really are a follower of Jesus, then this statement is not just attached to your identity. This is not just one of many things. It's not an add-on. This isn't like clothing you wear, but isn't really you. This is core to everything you are, how you live, how you act, and how you think. Now, this doesn't remove, by the way, things like gender or your ethnic background or your history or your economic or educational level, but it is the grounding of your identity. And if you are a Christian, it should affect and inform all the other categories. As one wrote, the basic calling of a Christian is to identify with the name, holy and simply. In a way, that one confession of Christ becomes the most essential fact of one's life, the most essential. This is selfhood at its deepest. This is identity at its most influential. So why are we talking about this today? Well, the goal is for us here at Sanctus Church to, the, to end this year with the foundation of our faith and how it again informs our core identity. This is why we've called this series, The Real You. And, and what we're going to do all summer is this. We're going to do something. We're going to look at great leaders, faith leaders throughout all of the scriptures to see what we share with each one of them in our core identity, our Christian identity given in Jesus. But also every week, we're going to look at an action step that they actually took as they lived out of their God-given identity and see if we are called into the same action. So welcome to the new summer series. By the end, you should know who you are, what you're called to be, and how much you are loved. So the very first character we've decided to begin with is Abraham. He's mentioned 44 times in the Old Testament, 73 in the New Testament. His first name is Abram, which means meant exalted father. Later, God changes his name to Abraham, father of a multitude. Now, Abraham did become a friend of God, but his identity was rooted in being chosen and being called personally. God calls him, notice this, by name. And then also he becomes the father of many nations. Now, don't forget this, because this is actually true of you if you're a follower of Jesus. This is core to who you are. This is how God sees you. This is what you must live out of and under and through. This must have more power and sway in your life than basically any other thing. 
So to begin to work this out, we have to go back near the beginning. The whole human family, after Noah's flood, have decided to listen to the same lies that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. Those poisonous seeds where Satan said to the human family, don't trust God, God's afraid of you, God is keeping so much from you, you're better, you need to do something yourself. And so humanity, with one voice, with one language, decided to try this again. And this is where we come to the story of the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11.4, and the human family said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, remember, God had said to the human family, you must scatter over the face of the whole earth and, and multiply. And they said, no. And they said, we're going to disobey and, and we're going to do something instead. We're going to build something called religion. Since we're blocked from Eden, we'll force ourselves back into heaven. Here we see in Babel the formalization of religious and pretentious humanism. Religion says, I can get saved by what I do spiritually, by my actions. Humanism says there is enough potential in the human family to do everything we need. We don't need God. Billions are enslaved by both of these today, and they find the roots here. So it says in verse 5 that God came down to see the city and the tower that people were building. Ironic, he has to come all the way down to see the thing. And God said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Oh, oh don't miss this. God doesn't just take this as a joke. He doesn't laugh or ridicule the human, the human family. He takes this very seriously. This is a genuine threat to divine rule and will. Never forget the Bible teaches we're made in the image of God. There's great power, thought, creativity, ability, and in a fallen state, our ability to create evil is exponential. So God says in verse 7, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. See, God understood that to destroy the city again or topple the tower, it's only a short-term solution. This was a heart problem. This was a sin problem. And so he decides to sever the common link, language. And as one said years ago, the linguistic diversification at Babel is presented as God's merciful way to avoid destroying the whole human race determined to rebel against him. In the agreement between God and Noah, he promised he would not destroy the world again. So this is mercy, just like kicking out Adam and Eve, again, was mercy, forbidding them from eating from that tree and living eternally in a damned state. But that's not the end of the story. Just like Eden was not the rest of the story, now this isn't the rest of the story. The, the story narrows now to one man out of the whole human family. Now, God has not spoken in this type of language since the time of Noah. God didn't talk for all these generations in the language of faithfulness and love and marriage and vow and connection and calling. So God sovereignly chooses to walk into one man's life. We read about it in Genesis 12.1. Then God said to Abram, go from your, your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So God calls Abram and encounters Abraham and calls him by name. Now, this is identity marker one. Abram, later Abraham, 
is one of the called ones. Now, Abram is a religious pagan. He did not know the true living God. He did not know the God of Noah. The region he comes from worshiped the moon primarily and multiple other small g gods. And yet, though Abraham did not know God, worshiped false gods, was not looking for God, probably did not know about the existence of the God of the Jews, the God of Noah, the God of of Adam and Eve, God comes. God introduces himself. God calls. God saves. God calls him out of blindness and meets him, interestingly, in his older age. And so God saves him. And then at this conversion-like moment, at this point of allegiance, he says, oh, and give up everything. Go. I know we've only met, but I'm asking you to give up everything. You need to leave your father, your family, your comfort, your culture. All that makes up what you value. Give it up. I love what Calvin translated. I, God, command you to go forth with closed eyes until having renounced your country, you've given yourself wholly to me. One scholar pointed out that when you hear the phrase, the father's household, we miss the power and the radicalness of this. In the ancient Near East, household gods were passed down generation to generation. There were also the belief that the ancestors needed to be taken care of and were alive. And you needed to give offerings and take care of them. And most important, of course, he points out, is you need to take care of elderly parents and you need to bury them. The inheritance one received not only includes material possession and ownership of land, but also taking one's place in the family line, supernatural and physical, and appropriating the blessings that have been passed down through that family line. And and God says, I want you to put all that behind you. So God says, I want you to abandon your land, your family, your gods, your ancestors, and even uh, you need to move on from your family, even if they're living. So he has to decide if he's going to abandon his nation. But in the middle of that, God says, I'm going to show you a new land. And also I'm going to increase you numerically and give you great significance and influence. Now, if you read Genesis carefully, Genesis 1 through 11, the word blessing or blessed is used only five times. In the next two verses, it's used five times. So this gets really poignant, really quick. Verse two, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So God's going to make him not only into a called person, but into a great nation. And this is a great contrast to the last chapter where the peoples of the earth gathered together to build a tower to make themselves great. God says, no, 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 I'm going to make you great. There's royal language here, by the way, and there's promise. Not only a great nation, not only a blessing, not only a great name, but through this man, somehow every single nation or ethnic group on earth is going to be blessed. Now, did you catch this? God is love and mercy and forgiveness. God says one chapter later, I'm going to bless all the people groups that have just rebelled against me at Babel. And yet Abraham, Abram at this point, knows his wife is barren. He has no ability to have kids with her, and he's already 75 years old. So, Abram obeys. He went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old, and he set out to Haran. And then it says that Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. 
And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I'll give you this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who, the Lord who had appeared to him. So he makes this, by the way, 500-mile journey. It will take over a month. Remember, he's not young and vigorous. He's 75 years old, and he still obeys. He finally arrives at this place, which is foreign, and God says, I'm going to give your offspring this place. And then, oh, by the way, if you keep reading Genesis, God doesn't speak for another 24 years. 24 years. So how do you become a great nation in 24 years? Well, over those years, if you know the story, God promises but doesn't show up in, in the appropriate timing. So his wife Sarai says to Abraham, well, obviously we've got to help God out. So I have this maidservant named Hagar. You sleep with her. And so they did that and Ishmael was born and, and they thought they were helping God out, but this is actually not what God had commanded. And even though there's unfaithfulness and faith all mixed together, God still shows up. So now in Genesis 17, 15, God says to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, you'll no longer call her Sarai, but you'll call her Sarah. And I'll bless her and I'll give a son by her and I'll bless her. So she'll become the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And Abraham fell down and he laughed to himself. Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Oh, now he's a hundred. Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? So God shows back up even through all this unbelief and says, I'm still going to do this. And, and notice, I've preached this before. In the middle of God, in all of his presence, speaking with Abraham, Abraham laughs in God's face. Now, it's hard to read. Is it joy or skepticism or both? Hard to say. But in the middle of holiness and power and God's deep presence, faith and unbelief, he still works. And then nothing again. <laughs> Genesis 18, 1. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great te- trees of Mamre, while he was still sitting at the entrance of his tent at the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent, met them, bowed down to the ground. He said, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, don't pass your servant by. So they invite them in in classic Middle Eastern hospitality. They have a huge feast. And it says in verse 7, while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. And one of them said, where's your wife, Sarah? Well, there she's in the tent. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now, verse 10 says again, now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind them, and Abraham and Sarah were already very old. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, there's laughter again, and thought, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old. Will I now have this pleasure? Sarah is listening, and she knows this is impossible. She knows this is ludicrous. And she's heard all this before. I mean, she left and has followed Abram through all this stuff. Now, God keeps saying a kid is coming, and she keeps going, it's never happening. And if this had happened years ago to her, of course, this would break her core identity, because in this culture, if you were barren, it was a sign of God's judgment on women. So she struggled with a core identity issue her whole life, but now she's way beyond hurt. She's just a jaded skepticism. Are you kidding me? This is out of the question. This is ridiculous. We're old, like really old. This is, you know, not really possible. Well, suddenly in the story, some of you know it, the tables turn. 
because suddenly we begin to see the identity of who the three people are. We find out two of them are angels, but one of them is God himself, the same God that called Abram at 75, the same God that has said all these promises. So it says in verse 13, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child when I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year. Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid. She lied and said, I did not laugh. But God said, yes, you did laugh. Now, we know that the ultimate meaning, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise happens later. This is prequel, sneak peek of what is to come. From Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Judah, Joseph, we know that all the ethnic groups of the world are blessed through Jesus. And Jesus comes from Abraham's line. Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of who? Ah, Abraham. But for the purpose of this series and the purpose of what God is trying to give our church at this moment, What do we learn? Well, this is true of you. The core of your identity is this. You are called by name. Just like Abraham was called out of darkness into light, this has happened to you if you're a Christian. You cannot achieve this. You can only receive this. Notice God is calling, God's calling you has nothing to do with what you do, what you own, what people think of you, or what family you even come from. And because God's choosing is 100% his choice, it removes you and your identity from being trapped or mislabeled or borrowed in the wrong direction or confused. So when you really see that his choice was fully him and nothing to do with you, that's the moment where you become free. This is what God does for you, not with you. Let me say that again. This is what God does for you, not with you. What happened to Abraham has already happened to you and in you fully through Jesus. That's why generations later, Paul time and time again used the same language to describe the normal Christian identity. Ephesians 1.3, praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose, he called the elected by God. The focus here is God's own initiation and what God has accomplished and what God will maintain. Now I want you, I know many of you have heard me preach this before, but it just matters, especially at this moment where everything is just seeming to fall apart. Stop here and embrace this. We are the focus of God's holy love. We are the focus of his own divine initiation. We are the focus of his accomplishments. We are the focus of his perfect maintenance. Before time existed, before the seven days of creation, before, before, before God, promised within himself that he would choose you by name and save you and hold you and never let you go. See, I want to live my life and I want my identity to be grounded in a hand that never falters and never will ever let me go. It's the old prayer, hold me, Lord, never let me go. 
that finds its true meaning here. It's what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 9, 8, 29, for, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Uh, foreknew, by the way, that word is to intimately know. It's an active word. It's not a passive word. It's not observing. It's doing something. It actually, its root, the verb of this word, is the same word used when married couples know each other sexually. It's not passive, it's active. It actually has a direct connection to the Old Testament idea of God choosing Israel. And of course, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. It's not foresight. I know you're going to choose me, so I choose you. It's not passive, it's active. I choose you. We see this in Amos 3.2. When God says about Israel, you only have I chosen, sympathized with, loved out of all the families of the earth. See, this is the needed pill to cure religion and humanism. But it should, if you are a Christian, move you to breathless gratitude and a powerful, secure identity as a Christian, no matter what storm you are facing. See, he chose you. He walked into your life. And not only did he choose you, he also promises to make you holy and blameless in his sight, in love, Verse 4, he predestined us for adoption to sonship or daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Notice, God does the choosing, ready, out of what? Love. The word love here is agape love. It's God-given love. It's God-breathed love. It's God-DNA love. One wrote, agape love, God love, is strongly emotional, but it's not fueled by emotion. It's perfect love. And of course, we know that through the Holy Spirit, Paul outlined what God love looks like in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, agape is patient and kind. This love does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It's, it keeps no record of wrongs. Agape love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Because God is patient with us and kind towards us, and since he does not need to envy or boast, and he's not sinfully proud, and since he never dishonors others, and since God isn't self-seeking, and since God is not easily angered, and since God can choose to keep no record of wrongs, and since God does not love evil because he is truth, and since he protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres, out of all of that well of love, he called you. He set you apart. He destined to know you. He foreordained to meet you. He marked out beforehand, and the result is what? We are now adopted. Think about this. Adopted children have their position by grace alone, not by right, not by birth. They're brought into a family and put on the same footing as every other child, even though they are not biologically from that family. And it says very clearly, he did this out of his own pleasure and out of his will. God is God and his purposes and activities have no ultimate cause outside his own being. It was Martin Luther that actually penned what many of you are feeling as I'm preaching. He said, God's will has no why. <laughs> then he said, I am terrified by the thought or idea that someone that has ultimate power can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants unless he is fully holy and loved, which God is. So why start with Abraham and why start with this story? Here's why. 
One, our foundational identity as adopted children of God is in our calling. Nothing can take this away. Nothing can change this. Nothing can move this. If you're a Christian, you are called. God knew Abraham personally, closely. He was a friend and a co-worker, but he was chosen. Now, you might ask, rightly, well, why did God choose Abram and not his dad? Why Abraham and not his third cousin? Why, not Ab- why Abram and not another person? Why in that country and not another country? Why not someone else? And the answer is, I have no clue. But what I do know is God is good and perfect and trustworthy, and he called you, and that should give you the greatest comfort and should give you the strongest view of your identity through the lens of God. But there's a caveat that matters. The title, child of God or Christian, follower of Jesus, which are connected, many, many, many people claim that. But the question is, is it true? Before you make your identity as a called child of God, you have to, you have to know that you're called. <laughs> you can't just be a Christian on the surface. This isn't an inherited thing. This is a God-started thing. This is why Peter wrote a very uncomfortable verse, rarely preached, but very important. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, my brothers and sisters... Make every effort to confirm your calling and your election. You say, oh my goodness, well, how do I do that without going off the deep end and being afraid and always thinking I'm losing my salvation? Oh, no, no. What he's basically saying is this. Before you start saying, I'm a child of God and I'm called, see if there's any evidence in your life that you've encountered Jesus. Just because you prayed a prayer at three or five or raised your hand at something doesn't mean you're a follower of Jesus. Is there growing holiness? Is there a love for scripture? Is there evidence of God in your life? If there's even a little evidence, you're confirming your calling. Like I've said before, dead things don't struggle, living things do. But confirm your calling. Confirm it. Identity marker one. You are called by the living God. You had nothing to do with it. You can't stop it. You can't run from it. You just need to embrace it. You're called and adopted because of that calling. Oh, but here's the action step. Out of that calling, every one of us now has the ability to become the mother and father of many. As we've been called, we are now out of that calling, called to give faith away to the next generation. Each one of us must and be spiritual fathers and mothers to birth the faith into the next generation. And this can be done in two amazing ways by every single one of us. Every one of us can be Sarah and Abraham. First is actually your own literal biological or adopted family. You've got kids or grandkids, if you're an aunt or an uncle, a brother, a sister, a cousin. Inherited faith is never enough, but it is an amazing bridge and gift. You can literally become Abraham and Sarah out of your calling by actually passing it along in your actual household. Many of us that come to church accepted Jesus at three or six or nine or 12. We grew up in Christian homes and decided that the faith of our mothers and fathers or grandmothers or grandfathers was real and true. We just said yes, and we kept on walking in the same direction with Jesus and towards Jesus. Many times it feels boring, normal, family-based, unspectacular, 
and the power of it is missed. But see, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is when Paul is talking to Timothy. And he says this in 2 Timothy 1.5, I am reminded of your sincere, genuine faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm persuaded also now lives in you. Notice, inherited faith isn't enough. Just because grandma and mom are Christians doesn't mean Timothy. There's evidence that he's become one too. Now, what's interesting is both Timothy's mom and grandmother came to faith in Jesus. Both of them are Jewish women. They encounter Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and they share the fulfillment of the Jewish faith in Jesus with their son. Now, by the way, Timothy's dad doesn't become a Christian. He's a Greek. We have no evidence. Mom and grandma, but not dad. But they share this faith with Timothy his whole life. We know this later in 2 Timothy 3.15. From infancy, you, Timothy, have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, and then the famous verse that's quoted all the time, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So if you are connected to a family, you can become Abraham and Sarah in your own family, passing down the faith and having a new generation of people come to faith. Out of our calling, we pass the faith down. Now, some of you are saying, well, actually, I don't have my own children or my family situation is different. That's fine. You might not have your own children, but you can be a father or mother of nations still. Family faith always moves to church faith. Timothy was mentored by Paul and others. And so to all of you that serve, youth workers and sanctus kid workers and small group leaders, you may never see the results of the hundreds of kids or teens or adults' lives. But this is how you continue to pass on the faith too. And don't give up serving and don't give up having coffees and don't give up praying and don't give up doing Bible studies and meeting. Listen, it isn't irrelevant. This is the evidence. This is how you work this out. But this matters. You you need to literally say to yourself in your identity, I am called, I am adopted, and I have the privilege to be the mother or father of generations of Christians. Like I've said before, I'm even living proof of this. Uh, My family, Sunday school teachers, youth pastors, youth volunteers, my parents, they each led me on my own journey to where I am today. So as we begin this summer series, ask yourself, do you believe you're called? Have you tried working out to see if you're called? Do you live like you're adopted and you have full rights in the family? Do you see yourself as the mother or father of a generation or two beyond you? Because this is how God sees you, and this is true. So I end uh, this first conversation, this first sermon, like this. A father and son send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Holy Spirit, would you confirm in the deepest and widest of ways with every person listening to me that they are called They are adopted. And would you open their eyes to who they are supposed to father or mother in the faith? Lord, would you actually strengthen those who have been trying to do this and feel like nothing's happened? Would you actually give new vigor and courage to those who feel they're discounted and didn't think they could be involved in that? Would there just be, again, as the Bible says, a Kairos moment, a very divine sovereign moment for such a time as this moment with some people, that not only do they see themselves right 
through your eyes, but actually they begin to act. And new generations of people would encounter Jesus. Lord, we pray that our identities would be grounded at our core with what you say through the Holy Scriptures. Lead us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. Thanks for hanging out with us. Hopefully this is encouraging and we'll begin to either reaffirm or affirm something. And we'll see you next week as we keep diving in to our God-given identity as the scriptures teach us. We'll see you next week.